Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hi, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you've had a fantastic week. I certainly have because I've been chatting to some fantastic artists who I can't wait to introduce you to in coming weeks. Is there someone special from the 60s, 70s or 80s that you'd like to hear from? If so, just let me know. Shoot me a message through the website abreathoffreshair.com.au and I'll do my best to chase them up and bring them onto the show for you. Meantime, three very interesting guests coming up for you today. We're going to meet Irish band The Cause, or more specifically, Sharon Corr is going to join us to have a chat about what The Cause are up to today and to tell us all about her solo projects. We're also going to check in with Roland Kent Lavoie. No idea who that is, right? Well, what about if I play you this? Me and you and a dog named Boo Traveling and living off the land Me and you and a dog named Boo How I love being free man Me and you and a dog named Boo from Roland Kent Lavoie much better known to us as Lobo. Today Lobo is semi-retired and living in Florida with an incredible life story to share. Make sure you stay tuned, Lobo will be with us soon. But first up, there are not too many bands left that were formed in the 60s that are still releasing music today. One that is, is English group The Straubs, who were founded in 1964 under the name The Strawberry Hill Boys. The band released their first album in 1969, with Led Zeppelin's John Paul Jones and pianist Nicky Hopkins on board. The following year, Yes's Rick Wakeman joined the band, and in 1973, my next guest became one of the band's longest-serving members. Meet guitarist Chaz Cronk, who's also just released his very own solo album. Welcome to A Breath of Fresh Air, Chaz Cronk. What have you been up to? A different work pattern for me this year, really, very much so. As you know, I've, I've been back working with Straws for the last 20 years again, and Dave Cousins, our singer, has been having increasing health problems. And at the start of this year, he decided he, he would have to retire from live work for the f- foreseeable future anyway. So really, all my tours and everything this year were, were off. But that also coincided with a project I had worked on solo-wise during lockdown, which, which turned into an album. I want to talk to you about that album, but if you don't mind, let's take a walk back to where it all started. Your backstory is really quite fascinating. How did you get involved with the Straubs in the first place? It's kind of a long story, but there were so many interconnecting threads, which I didn't realise at the time leading up to it, um, having emerged from school and college bands. I was working my way around kind of the local West London area and Straubs were a West London band. He came into the shop and looked me straight between the eyes and said, you know, I'm Jesus. And I must have looked surprised because he said, please don't be hasty. No one understands, but I've gone away to prove it. And he lifted up his hands. He was the As uncanny as it might be, my mother worked across the desk from Dave Cousins' mother for the Hounslow Health Authority at the time. So I was aware of Straubs coming up and my mum would come back and say, oh, you know, talking to Mrs Cousins today and all David's bands doing really well. But, but you know, the other way around, (laughs) Dave Cousins was hearing about what I was getting up to. So we kind of knew each other, but we didn't, had never met. Uh And uh, Dave Lambert, who's a guitarist in Straubs, I had already kind of got to know him a bit because I was working with Rick Wakeman uh, when Rick and I met in a music shop in West London. He was a, still a student at the Royal College of Music and just after that I had a session come up. I, I was signed to a, a progressive kind of label and they needed a keyboard player for a session we were doing so I, I, having just met Rick I got him in to do it and of course he did marvellously well and the producers 
just looked at me and said, where did you find this guy? And, and basically that was the start of Rick's session career. He took off after that. He then went through Straubs. He was a member, he joined the Straubs. And I still hadn't met Dave Cousins or any of that, but I was doing sessions with Rick. We were doing film music and all sorts of things. My love is as the rose, as wild and free as I should wish to be. Close guarded by the thorns that shield her from the hands that seek to touch the hourglass and so free is rock that failed to hold the waves of time. My haven is the harbor bar, sheltering from the storm till the sun comes shining through again. And really, Hounds' whole Straubs thing, I guess, finally culminated is that Rick had joined Straubs, left Straubs, he joined Yes and really became a bit of a celebrity on the, you know, music-wise. And he did his first solo album, Six Wives of Henry VIII. So he asked me to pay in some of the tracks on that, uh, which I did. And on one of those tracks, he also brought in Dave Cousins and Dave Lambert from the Straubs. <laughs> and we ended up doing an old grey whistle test, which is, you know, BBC music show of the time. And we all had to appear on that together. And that's really the first time I met Dave Cousins. A few months after that, my wife and I moved to our first proper little flat in a place called Strawberry Hill, which isn't far from here, where the Straubs got their name from. And within about a week of being there, I got a phone call asking would I be interested in... Joining <laughs> in the band? The Straubs, yeah, and it, it all happened like that. It was very bizarre. A series of serendipitous moments. Very much so, very much so. yeah. You couldn't have planned that if you'd tried. Not really, no. And of course, my mother and Dave Cousins' mother, having worked together for some years, literally across the, the other side of the, an office, you know, um, very strange. Then tell me, Chaz, before we move further on, what was it like yeah. playing with Rick on Henry VIII? Oh, I was quite used to working with Rick by then. We'd done lots of recording sessions together. But um, of course, this was his first solo album, so he had come up with some wonderful bits of music. Uh, but he, at the time, kind of let me do my own thing, thing on it then. He, he'd set a framework up and then, you know, see what you can do with that jazz, you know, and let me get on with it. And uh, indeed, you know, some of the parts I came up with, he kind of, oh, that's handy, I'll expand on that, if you know what I mean. So I guess we knew each other pretty well and, and knew how to work with each other. And uh, it was exciting. Mm -hmm. I could tell he was excited about making his solo album and it was it was great to do and of course for me it was the first big record that, you know I'd been involved with. And of course, funny enough, we did, uh, just to bring it more up to date, that story in a way, um, a few years back, Rick performed the whole of Six Wives and Henry VIII with live orchestra, big band, choir, and then we did it just down the road from here, where we, where I live, in at Hampton Court Palace, the front of the Hampton Court Palace, which of course was Henry VIII's palace in the time, so it was, uh, you know, the, the setting for it. The only concert they've ever allowed to be happening in front of the palace, I believe, and... Um, Acoustic Straubs opened for him. We did the opening set for, for the show. So, Chaz, once you were a member of the Straubs, I guess then you took to the road, you were really flying high with them as a group, weren't you? Well, it was it was certainly a really busy time from the moment I joined. I mean, they had already had established as a couple of hit records with Lay Down, which was really good, and then, of course, Part of the Union happened, um, which not not totally indicative of what the band were doing at the time, but, of course, it was a hit record and the record company could see <laughs> see that, so they were encouraged to do it. But it, it caused friction within the band, a push-pull of directions going on within that lineup at the time, and, you know, it led to a breakup. Now I'm a union man, amazed at what I am. I say what I think, that the company stinks. Yes, I'm a union man. When we meet in the local hall, I'll be voting with a hell of a shout, it's out, brothers out, and the rise of the factories fall.
But it was a bit of a whirlwind for me. I was the kind of rookie compared to the others in terms of touring. So it was a, a you know, baptism on fire, I think, in terms of being on the road. What came out of that new lineup? Well, the first uh, album that came out was Hero and Heroine, which was arguably one of the, one of the Straub's best-known albums, really, and most popular in the States at the time. Were you surprised um, at the success that the band did have in the States? In a way, yes, because it was so British, the band, if you like. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. It didn't pander to the kind of American kind of rock and roll thing and there were no no discernible rock and roll or R&B roots there or anything. Yes, it seemed to take off and just hit a nerve. I mean, America was having the Vietnam War and things going on at the time and our sound to them was quite different because we were using Mellotrons and, uh, you know, Moog synthesizers in, in a way that they... They weren't over there. I remember Carlos Santana, for instance, was just fascinated at our sound check with the sound of the Mellotron. He, he was really, you know, there's a guitar god who I really looked up to, and yet all he wants to know about, oh, can I look at that? And, you know, <laughs> he ended up inviting us to his dressing room. We had long chats about it. So how long were you with the Straubs for during that period before they split up? Straubs didn't split up, but were, were kind of forced to stop, stop working because of business things, um, shall we say. Uh, at the end of the 70s. So really I joined in 73 and I had a bit of a mercurial passage through the 70s with quite a few other albums and goodness knows how many tours of America. You've got to be young to be touring like that, don't you? Imagine doing it at this age. No, no, no. We we still were touring quite a lot until recently, but uh, not that that intensity, no. Who was writing all the material? Was that a collaborative effort? Partly, but Dave Cousins has always always been the main kind of songwriter with Straubs. And as time went on, I ended up collaborating quite a bit with him and co-writing a few things. Is it possible for you to pick the favourite track that you helped write? I think if you're looking at what could have been a hit but wasn't, I mean, I, I guess there was always this kind of lurking pressure from the from the music business behind behind Straubs, sort of saying, "Well, you had a hit records already. Why don't you?" come up another one, but of course Straws was essentially an album's band, you know, the whole, the way the music was put together was very much um, with the kind of concept album in mind, you know. Around about the mid-70s, about 75, 76, um, I wrote a whole load of stuff with Dave for an album called Deep Cuts. I wrote a song with him uh, called I Only Want My Love To Grow New on Deep Cuts. And that was a big, big airplay hit here in the UK and, and I think a few other places. came around, Dave made a decision to go and work in the radio industry, is that right? Yeah, there have been kind of a few things going on behind the scenes with Straubs, nothing to do with the musical element or the way the band got them, and it became a bit of an impossible situation, and it was the birth of the independent radio stations in this country, and he had a good background in kind of marketing, market research, and someone offered him a job with a formative commercial radio station down in Devon where he lived. So he com- he completely swapped out his career. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he, he, he did. But of course, it didn't take that long before he was doing little shows on the side quietly or doing little folk clubs. And huh. he missed playing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think he always would. Kept his hand in. I mean, but but as far as the, that lineup of the band goes at the time, we had just made an album called uh, Heartbreak Hill. For me, it was one of the best Straub's albums stuff I'd ever done didn't come up at, at the time. As it happens, Rocket Records, Elton John's company, offers us a deal for it. And that's what kind of split Dave because he kind of made a decision that he just to step away from it and go into the independent radio thing. But we didn't take them up on the offer at the time and off Dave went. Uh, the rest of us just went off and did our things, really. I went back to freelancing. You went back to session work. I believe then that you were playing with people like Steve Hackett. You got yeah, back I, to playing with Rick Wakeman. Yeah, that's right. It's a tight little industry, the music industry in the UK, isn't it? Everyone kind of started off in that era knowing each other. There was a, a lot of that, I think. Yeah, you kind of could, did meet a lot of people just in the West London area, especially, you know, there's, yeah. uh, because it, so much music came out of there, really, the Stones started around here. You were certainly but, in the right place at the right time, weren't you? Kind of, yeah, I think that. <laughs> 
That always helps, doesn't it? <laughs> totally does. Chas Cronkite, it was uh, 2004 when you got back with the Straubs again and you were saying yeah. earlier that you're still with them today. Well, yes, I mean, technically we're just off the road because of Dave's health at the moment, but he's very keen to make yet another album. We hope to start work on the new album pretty soon. Before I let you go, though, I do want to speak about your first solo album called Liberty. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Very much a product of lockdowns, but it was the first time in I could remember that I didn't have a tour to think about. There were definitely some good things about being in lockdown. Really produced yeah. a lot of creative stuff from a lot of people. So, yeah. and 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 that's where yours grew from. How would you sum up the album? An expression of what I was feeling at the time throughout all that. I mean, the liberty was. It was just that feeling. Couldn't wait for to have liberty yeah. again. You know, and <laughs> to that's get it. out. It yeah. is exactly exactly that. with the song Liberty. It dovetailed with the Straubs doing an album in lockdown, doing it all remotely. I put Liberty up on social media, and I don't indulge in social media very much. And it got thousands of hits really quickly. And a record company in America came on and, and said, like this, are you interested in doing something? Every track was an expression of feelings experienced during lockdown. Right. At the same time, I just want everything to have a positive and uplifting message, like we will get through this. And you were right. <laughs> Well, Chas Cronk, I better let you go. Choose a track for me from your album, Liberty, that you'd like our audience to hear and we'll go out on. Okay. And you go Into the Light. A good one to go, I reckon. there with his new solo album Liberty. Coming up it's Lobo next, so hang in there, won't you? This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Thanks for hanging in. Call me one hit wonder. Curse me to the day I die. One hit wonder. I hit the blunt and just wonder most popular one-hit wonders of our time would have to be the song Me and You and a Dog Named Boo. It was penned by one Roland Kent Lavoie, but we all knew him better as Lobo, a quiet, unassuming man who never wanted any part of the fame and glory that success brought. Kent made sure that he hid behind his alter ego in much the same way that Superman hid behind Clark Kent. When I finally got him on the phone, I started off by asking him where he got the name Lobo from. Even to this day, I've never done a lot of press. I never did uh, big tours. I never did. Uh, I never had an agent except for very brief periods of time. And, and it, it was a desire of mine to not be out front. That was my plan to start with. Write a hit song. You got an annuity. You can have a good life. That was it. And I, it just kept expanding, and I was so grateful that I had the, the name Lobo to hide behind because it afforded me the ability to be Lobo when I'm on stage or doing what I'm doing now, and beside that, I'm out mowing my lawn. Nobody ever believes the way I live, and it has nothing to do with money or could live a bigger life or whatever. Yeah. It's just yeah. what I choose to do. But the name Lobo, let me get through that. Yeah. My once I, once we decided I was not going to use my name, my producer said, "Will you go through some names?" And so I wrote a bunch of names on the thing, and, and I was reading them out, and I forgot I can't remember any of them. But when I said Lobo, he said, "What does that mean?" And I said, "Well, it, in Spanish it means wolf." And he said, "Well, that's great because me and you and a dog named Boo, it looks like a wolf because she was a German Shepherd, and that's where that came from." When I started off in bands, 
The first show we ever played was at the high school talent show, and we just did instrumental. And I had worked up What Did I Say by Ray Charles. And it has a real long intro in it. Down, 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 down. Anyway, so I'm getting my courage up at this long intro, you know. And so the first thing you do in that song is tell your baby not to treat me wrong. Come and love you, daddy. Oh, I love you. Hey, mama, don't you treat me wrong. Come and love you, daddy. Oh, Sandy, because I saw, and these were young school teachers, they were probably maybe in their 30s, and I was, what, 16, 15. As soon as I opened my mouth and started singing, I became a different person to these people, to the women in the crowd. And this is the first time I ever sang in my life. It was an eye-opener. It was, it, was, it was amazing. That's how it started. So did you start getting more attention from the girls as a result of that? Well... You know, all of us that play music, successful or not, always start off the same way. First, it's you try to try to play something. Then you get in a band and you play, and it's so much fun. And then all of a sudden, you turn around and there's girls all around the band. Well, that's fun. And then, because I was in college at the time, I could play two nights a week. I could live, pay my tuition, and go to college, playing two nights a week rather than working at the grocery store all day. Yeah. You know, I don't tell people what I do because they start looking at you like you came from Mars. No, if you, you know, if I said, well, I'm an attorney and I've, I've retired and I've made yeah. $50 million, they would kind of, you know, say, well, that's nice. But yeah. if I said, remember this record? And that's the way it's always been. You know, I've always been like, uh, oh, yeah, you wrote that dog song. Yeah, yeah, that's me. Let it go. You know, and, and it, it, it works for me. I remember to. my big hits I wrote. I wrote them by myself. I was a single writer. That's the end of the story as far as me needing anything. I didn't have a financial burden on yeah. me ever because I don't live big. My own choosing. Yeah. So you still make a substantial living out of the songs that you wrote? More than I can spend. And I, I, that's not true. More than I do spend, put it that way. Kendra, you were working in Tampa in some bars in 1970. That's when you started writing Me and You and a Dog Named Boo. I read somewhere about you that you had been talking to a publisher who said that the songs that were happening at the time were taking on this me and you against the world sort of stance. And that's how you came up with it. Can you share the backstory? Yes. Now, Phil Gernhard, after he had Snoopy versus the Red Baron, I started hanging around his office and, and he said to me, listen, he says, you're an okay singer. He said, but nobody's gonna ever give you a hit song. You're not that good of a singer. So you better write it. And it took me about three years. And I took songs down there. Every five minutes, I took songs down. And I, 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 they sent me to New York a couple of times to cut things. And during that trip, I met with a publisher. And he's the one that said the Helen Reddy line, you know, me and you against the world. This is before Helen Reddy wrote that song. You and me against the world. Sometimes it feels like you and me against the world When all the others turn their backs and walk away You can count on me to stay I had that in mind, I went home and I had this, I had the, I had the start of the song and I had the chorus of how I was going to do it but I couldn't rhyme me, you and me so I, so I changed it to me and you so I'm trying to come up with a with a rhyme, and I'm in a in a room that has a sliding glass door to the backyard, which is fence. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I look, and there sits my dog named Boo. 
this is a true story. Everybody thinks I made this up. And I'm trying to rhyme you, you understand. And I said, me and you and a dog named Boo. You know, and, and it was the weirdest thing. And everybody that heard that song, it was just a hit song, you know, for the time. Me and you and a dog named Boo. We all love it. It's <laughs> held you. up over time incredibly. But what, what were you writing about? I mean, once you found the title for it and uh, it was an homage to your dog, what were you writing about well, in there? I had the first verse. I remember to this day the bright red Georgie play and how it stuck the tires after the summer rain. And then I don't know if I had the willpower makes the old car go. A woman's mind told me that. So, but I knew I had the part where went dun 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 and I dun and me and you and I'm going on and on about everything. And and that's you know it it sometimes. You know, it's like we were talking earlier about the mystery of music. Yeah. I'll tell you the real mystery of music is writing music because the emotions come in your head, then the lyric comes in your head, and the first thing you know, you're recording this song. And the next thing you know, they're playing violins on it, and you're choking up because it, you, you can't believe that this song that you wrote, you're in New York in Jimi Hendrix studio, no less. Uh -huh. For me and you and a dog named Boo. Surreal. It was surreal. Me and you and a dog named Boo. Traveling and a living off the land. Me and you and a dog named Boo. How I love being a free man. It was 1972 that you had the follow-up album uh, called Of a Simple Man. And, of course, that had the terrific hit on it, I'd Love You To Want Me. I believe you've been listening a lot to songs like Nielsen's Without You and Mac Davis' Baby Don't Get Hooked On Me when you wrote that one. Yeah, I, once again, usually I had a lyric idea before I started, but I, I decided that, that, you know, Without You by Nielsen's probably in my top three all-time records. He was a Beatles' favorite singer, remember, and I don't blame him. Yeah, I, I had the idea for the song and I, I finally, I put it together and I took it into Phil and he said, I think this is really something we can use. And so I rewrote part of, and I can't tell you what part I rewrote. The, the, the song was about a, a seeing someone and knowing that they're looking at you with the same feelings you have for them. But there is a reason that you can't get together. Now, in my mind, it was a school teacher. Ah. Okay, now nowadays that's people going to jail for that over here. But it, it, in my time, that was something that would have never happened in a million years. The other thought in my mind, because I did write a song about this one time, and it was called All the Children Love Sister Mary. In my psyche, it was also the, the idea of a nun. It took time for me to know what you tried so not to show. Something in my soul just cries, I see the want in your blue eyes. That's probably the only song I ever wrote that had the mystery in it. When I saw you standing there I about fell out my chair And when you moved your mouth to speak I felt the blood go to my feet Now it took time What you tried so not to show There's something in my soul just cried I see the want in your blue was a wonderful experience because this thing just grew bigger and bigger and bigger. It grew from a little acorn into a tree. That's exactly right. You actually pitched that song to the Hollies, didn't you? As a potential yeah. follow-up to Long Cool Woman. I do know that they liked it. What they didn't like was the line in the song 
that everybody loved from Liza Minnelli cut that song and on and on and on. And when you moved your mouth to speak, I felt the blood go to my feet. They didn't like that line. They said, well, it looked like you're in a car wreck or something, you know? Well, I said, I was always conscious of the fact that if somebody like the Hollies following up Long Cool Woman in the Black Cup, uh-huh. You know, this is a, this is an automatic hit. This is a worldwide hit. Probably been a bigger hit than it was me. But it was the only time where I said, screw them. I'm, I wrote this song. It took me forever to write it. I recorded it, and they want to put it out as a single on me. Tell them thanks, but no thanks. Did you know from the outset that that was going to be a smash hit? You know, back in those days, phone calls were the only way you found out anything. And when... The label starts getting calls from all over the country same day the record goes out. Uh, you know that, that it's a hit. It's the same thing with me, me and your dog named Boo. But uh, I'd love you to want me, especially in Europe and in Germany. I was number one 13 weeks in Germany. And, and it's been recorded by, I don't know, 50 or 60 people or something. It was the song of my career, even though I had other songs that made money and stuff. It was the defining thing, but most people think the defining thing in my career is me and you and Dog Named Blue. So you had those two massive hits, and you, as you said, you've made you've made lots of other songs that have made good money for you since, but never to the same level as those two. Were you disappointed that you could never reach that level again? Or I guess having had this chat with you now, I I could probably answer that and say no, you were cool with it. I was completely cool with it, but what you got to remember is don't expect me to be your friend was also a top ten tune in the United States. I stopped sending flowers to your apartment You said you aren't at home much anymore I stopped dropping by without an appointment Cause I'd hear laughter Sometimes late at night you'll still call me Just before you close your eyes to sleep You make me vow to try and stop by sometime But baby, that's a promise I can't keep I love you too much to ever start liking you So let's just let the story kind of end I love you too much to ever start liking you So don't expect me to be your friend Don't expect me to be your friend. Much to Lobo's surprise, his music was also huge in Asia. Okay, the first night was in Hong Kong. 5,000-seater outdoors, and there were two or three times that many people hanging off the buildings, looking out of windows. And I'm doing the show, and I keep hearing this singing. They're singing every song with me. Then there's yelling a song. They're just yelling something from all over, from the buildings. And I turned around the drummer. I said, what are they yelling? And he said, they're yelling Stoney. I said, Stoney? Stoney was an obscure album song that I'd never played on stage. And I went up to the microphone dumbly and said, do you, would you want to hear Stoney? And it was like, the, if I was going to play Stairway to Heaven. I, I, I was doing it two nights in a row. So I, the next night I did it and everybody in Hong Kong was singing this song. And I asked later and they said, Lobo music is campfire music in Hong Kong. Now well, think about that for a minute. They said, we did it in a room and we get in a circle and we play like we have a fire and we sing songs. And my songs are so simple. And, and, and I figured it out. They could hear my voice. It was easy to play. And then they grew to love these songs. And to this day, if I play Stoney, I draw a crowd and everybody sing. Stoney, happy all the time. Stoney, life is summertime.
ended up becoming famous anyway. You couldn't escape all the critical acclaim, could you? The key word, Sandy, you said was endured. It was a running joke. We're on the airplane going to Asia. I would say to Billy, I said, Billy, he's coming. What are you talking about? I said, Robo's coming. He's coming into my body. Because <laughs> when I get off the plane, there's television crews and, and I go do press and crap and I go do a show and a limousine and all that crap. Then I get back in the plane and we're going back to America and I, and I say, Billy, I feel him leaving. As I get back to America, I'm just a, a weird old guy that gets off the plane. You know, it, it's a strange feel. Kent Lavoy there. And if you're into him and want to see what else he's up to today, check out the new Lobo YouTube channel. It's pretty cool. Back in a minute with The Cause. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Welcome back. Time for the segment of our show that really belongs to you, the one where you get to request a guest. And it's thanks to Michael in Manila in the Philippines this week that we're chatting with Irish Celtic-influenced band The Cause. Michael wrote me to say that The Cause smash hit Forgiven Not Forgotten had played a huge part in his life and he wondered what his favourite band was up to today. Well, Michael, here's Sharon Kaur to fill you in. Sharon, you've been on hiatus for some time. What's going on with the family? Yeah, I mean, we just sort of, you know, come back and forth at whenever the inspiration takes. I've done three solo albums, so I released my last solo album, The, the Fool and the Scorpion, last year. Kind of like my stuff, and then the chorus come back and we do that. And, you know, it's just we, we just do it quite naturally. It's it's been a while since we've had a, a release from the cause, though. Is there anything in the pipeline? We released um, Jupiter Calling in 2017, I think. So that was our last studio album. We haven't done one since. We don't have new stuff at the moment, but hey, no, who knows, in the future we probably will do. How would you describe your solo stuff as opposed to what you do with the family? I think it's pretty different. I mean, if you listen to my latest album, it's pretty raw. Very organic, very sort of singer-songwriter. The lyrics are pretty off the charts sometimes and they're very deep and it's very autobiographical. So there's a lot of emotions on there. The dirty sky hovers over me Fall into sullen aching Don't go there drop express yourself more when you do it alone than when you work with your siblings? I think I get to express in different ways. I mean, when it's with my sibling, siblings, it's like, you know, four people writing. So that becomes a combination of your influences. When I'm working on my own, it's just my influences. It's just, it's a, it's a different pathway and both are good and both influence each other as well. Do you fight with your siblings? Well, I don't think there's any sort of perfection in these areas and, and you know it's like it's more more the sort of perfect imperfect you know because what, kind of what is imperfect in our connection is the perfection it's what brings the magic even if it's anger or fighting or something like that something comes out of that I would say that one of our greatest successes is that we actually still talk to each other you know <laughs> not 40 not 40 million albums which is a gigantic success but actually we talk to each other. You know, it's very trying when you leave home as four siblings and then you're basically stuffed onto couches together for years, playing on tour buses in hotels. Oh God, they're at breakfast again. You know, it's like, yeah, it, it, that's very, very, very challenging. And also to sort of crack open the sort of pecking order and go, you know, actually, I really do have an opinion that's not my six-year-old opinion. <laughs> I've kind of grown up. So I found when we got to back together sort of for the White Light album, we'd all grown up a lot. The pecking orders no longer applied. We were just more involved as people and more just, let's listen to that. I think you've, you've got maybe a good idea there. Let's try it. 
So we were much more open as people. And now that really bonded us. Jupiter calling, I mean, such an incredibly natural process, just all of our influences coming together and just sort of like a river and flow. It was quite beautiful what, what we did with that one. And then nobody going, nah, don't like your idea. We, we were open to everything and then we go, nah, it sucks. But you know, it was just a much more open environment and that's exactly what we need to work. Of course we fought millions of times. I mean, that's a rite of passage to them. If you're not fighting, you are probably dysfunctional. that you had something really unique with your siblings. Was there a time that you can actually remember when you go, gosh, we're actually good? I never really looked at it that way, like, oh, we're good. I mean, I suppose sort of brought up in Catholic Ireland, you didn't get ahead of yourself. You didn't get sort of, I'm fabulous. And you've shut down in seconds. But, you know, a natural woman's inclination as well is not to be too arrogant or indeed actually have confidence, which is a disaster because, of course, you need confidence, which I have now. But you learn that, you know that as a woman. A lot of it was unmeditated over. It's like we didn't really realize. I do remember working on the song Forgiven Not Forgotten because we were like five years writing songs before we got a record deal. And those songs were really, really crafted. And we were in like this damp house from hell with spiders, cobwebs everywhere. We didn't have any money then. And, you know, egg cartons stuck to the, work, work, the, the wall for soundproofing and it was freezing. And we would do that and then sort of work on sort of, you know, the vocal thing, which was our, which was our thing. And the sound of our three voices together was something quite powerful. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think, you know, some of the songs I would have thought yeah, that's that's really quite good. But I don't know, I just didn't look at things that way. Whereas now, if I write something I go, I go, that's good. Mm, well done, girl. All staring on, watching her life go by. When her days are grey and her nights are black. Different shades of mundane. One-eyed furry toy that lies upon the bed Has often heard her cry And heard her whisper out a name long forgiven But not forgotten You're forgiven, not forgotten You're forgiven, not forgotten So you've certainly come into your own. Was there ever a question that that was what you were going to do with your life? If you had wanted to head down another path, the cause wouldn't be the cause. I don't know. I think it was just sort of destiny. All of us were involved in music separately from day nothing. You know, it was just like me, mum and dad were musicians. So I don't know, it just sort of felt like our natural pathway. 
Um, we were terrified like little rabbits, you know, absolutely terrified. But I suppose it was, it was a lot of it was kind of perseverance and going with the with, with, with the flow of it. I don't think there was another pathway, honestly. And you were encouraged by your parents all the way, weren't you? Which always makes a big difference. How did it feel when Breathless hit number one in the States when you finally conquered both sides of the Atlantic? That must have felt amazing. Well, Breathless, I mean, you know, I remember where we got news. We were in Hyde Park. I think we were playing Party in the Park. And, oh, my God, it was like this, you know, buffet of famous musicians and brilliant people or whatever. And backstage and we were the relative newbies and then I think our radio plugger mentioned to us just before we went on stage you're number one in 21 countries I mean that's hard to take in you know you're talking about Manila Taiwan you're you know the UK I mean it just it was absolutely insane you know there were sort of two real milestones well the first one was probably when we recorded uh, the cover of Dream Sleep with Mac and uh, put, put our twist on it. And then that was the one that started gaining radio playing. It's only right that you should play the way you feel it. But listen, can't lead to the sound of your loneliness like a heart. our twist on the song and then people went now we know what your sound is so then they identified one away then they identified everything else and they go oh that's the course so that was a milestone and then breathless was then okay we thought we're definitely hit the big time here you know? <laughs> and, and how did hitting the big time feel for you how did it change the way you were the way you lived your life what difference did it make to you i think it became you're like in a bubble because we never stopped working. I had it change lives. I do remember one day, I mean, sometimes, you know, you leave the hotel and, you know, there was paparazzi outside and stuff like that. And I, I really don't like that stuff. So you kind of feel like you're in a fishbowl in a way, but then you also have to pinch yourself and go, well, this doesn't happen to many people. And it is because people love our music. So you get this sort of byproduct, which is slightly negative and invasive. But if you handle it well and just keep yourself pretty private and just expose your music, then, you know, you have a pretty good chance of surviving it. I remember going into Harvey Nichols um, and I was like, I could never have afforded to walk in that door. And then going in there and buying stuff for mum for Christmas. We grew up with enough food and enough love and enough music, but there were no extras. And then all Mm -hmm. of a sudden I'm in Harvey Nichols with Andrea and everybody like stopped in Harvey Nichols and turned around and recognised us. And Andrea and I were going... Good God! It's like everybody knows us. And this is London, Knightsbridge. And it's like so posh. Kind of those things that really struck me. But the joy of it was being able to buy things for a moment to have that they would never have had. Go on, go on, leave me breathless.
1999, she was only 57. The thing was, is that she really felt the amazing dream before she left us because she was so proud of us. I mean, music was her passion. Sharon Kaur there, who's just beautiful both inside and outside. If you happen to be listening in Australia, you'll be able to catch the cause for a one-off performance very soon. Check your local listings. And don't forget, if you'd like to be like Michael and bring your favourite artist onto the show, just send me a message through the website a breathoffreshair.com.au. Thanks for your company today. If you've enjoyed what you're hearing, why not check the back episodes by subscribing to the podcast? And maybe tell a friend or two. I'd be super grateful. Take care of yourself, won't you, until we meet again. I'll look forward to your company same time next week. Bye now. Because it's a beautiful day. You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day.